Tonight we are going to explore Revelation chapter 17 and 18. And, uh, you know, there are those that, that say prophecy that believe the church will go through the tribulation. Will the church go through the tribulation is an often asked question. The answer is yes and no. I don't believe the true believers will go through the tribulation. I believe they're going to get raptured before the 70th week of Daniel even begins. However, there is a church that does go through the tribulation. And we were introduced to it when we were talking about the seven churches in chapter 2 and 3. It uh, was there under the label or the idiom of the church of Thyatira. And yet, uh, as we enter the post-rapture period, this church becomes a world church, a global church, a one-world religion. And not a New Age thing, but rather under Christian trappings. And this particular chapter, 17, 18, two chapters, 17 and 18, deal with this subject, I believe. The woman that rides the beast, chapter 17 and 18. This woman, uh, the, the idiom there in the vision, receives more attention than any other symbol in the book of Revelation. Many symbols we've encountered, some very briefly, some extensively. But the most extensive visibility of any of the symbols is this particular woman we're going to encounter here in chapter 17 18. And she's surrounded by more identifying clues than any other symbol in the book. Now, you may recall that we encountered a for another woman earlier in their study, chapter 12. Remember in chapter 12, we encountered those different personages, the T1 being a woman that had the 12 stars and so forth. So it's kind of interesting to contrast chapter 12 and chapter 17, first of all. And uh, I'll go through it briefly, but I'm going to encourage you at your leisure to do this on your own more carefully with your notebook. And make two columns. The first column you might call chapter 12, which we just discovered when we studied chapter 12, is, is Israel. And chapter 17, I'm going to call, for lack of a better label right now, the dragon lady. The dragon lady. Now, the first lady of chapter 12, where was she? She was in heaven. Now, chapter 17, this dragon lady's in the wilderness. The first lady was the mother of a son, namely the son of God. And the second one is the mother of harlots. I want you to notice, in every dimension, they're in contrast. The first lady was clothed with the sun. The second lady was clothed with the purple, scarlet, and gold. The first one had influenced the sun, moon, and stars. The second one, the kings of the earth. The first woman had the dragon as her enemy. And uh, the second woman, the woman of chapter 17 enemy turns out to be the ten kings that she initially rides and takes advantage of, but that ultimately turn on her. And uh, by nature, the first woman is pure, the second one's a harlot. The um, woman of Revelation 12 was hated by the powers of the earth, and chapter 17, she's caressed by them. The first woman is sustained by the wings of heaven, the second woman is sustained by the dragon, the red dragon. The final location of the first woman is the New Jerusalem, and the second woman becomes, ultimately, the habitation of demons. So they are certainly a contrast. The first example we had in chapter 12, the identity of the woman, I think, is so clear, it's easy to defend, it's hard to attack. The identity of the woman in chapter 17 is more argumentative. And while I may have some opinions, I want to try to do my best to point out that there are many good scholars that have very differing opinions about chapter 17 and 18. And my intent is to share those to you lightly, give you enough background to at least explore this, but with a strong urging that as you study your scripture, that you keep your options open 
and form your own opinions slowly after reading much scripture. Now clearly the idiom for the woman in chapter 17 has to do with Babylon and there's going to be many many views for reasons that will become very obvious the many commentators for centuries have seen in chapter 17 the role of Rome, the city of Rome and specifically the Vatican and we'll see why as we go and many people share that view. I regard it as virtually must reading for anyone that's serious about studying this passage is to read Dave Hunt's recent book A Woman Rides the Beast. It's got a great title. He's a very thorough researcher, doesn't pull any punches. It has something in that book to offend everyone but I think it's going to increasingly emerge as a definitive study of this issue, not just the Catholic doctrinal issues, which of course are part of it. He has a, a excellent grasp of the prophetic implications, not only with respect to this passage, but with world events that uh, uh, are transpiring as we speak. So I encourage you to look, take a look at that. There are many arguments we'll encounter that uh, Babylon is an idiom in Revelation for the city of Rome. And that's certainly true, and yet, you're also going to, I want you to be sensitive to the fact that there are some scholars that have maintained for centuries that it refers to literal Babylon, a city on the banks of the Euphrates. These scholars were laughed at, made fun of, until recent times. One of them being J. Vernon McGee, as an example. But until recent times, now with Saddam Hussein rebuilding the city of Babylon, those views are taken more seriously. I think that uh, we'll try to unravel some of this by looking at Zechariah 5 before the evening's over. There is a view that I do not hold, and yet I want to share with you in fairness to you, because it's one you should be aware of, and it's one that you want to make allowances for as you develop your biblical horizon. And that's the view that the term refers to the United States or America. Now, it's hard for me to present this uh, fairly because I don't happen to hold it. But there are some that regard Mystery Babylon as, as a symbolic illusion of the United States. They, this, this view relies heavily on Greco, uh, Greek and Roman architectural issues in uh, Washington. The fact that Columbia, the woman, is a symbol of this country. The fact that there's heavy Masonic influences in the early heraldry involved in this, this country. And so the, from all of this, one can build those kinds of views. And I've reviewed these notions. Some of them are very provocative and interesting, but I don't, I don't think they're valid enough to really want to develop here, other than make you aware of the fact there are some, not many, but there are some that hold those views. There's another view you should be conscious of, which may be more operative for you, and that is that some people regard chapters 17 and 18 as distinct. They say that there is an ecclesiastical Babylon in chapter 17 and a commercial Babylon in chapter 18. And I think you will, as you read the chapters, you can see why they hold that view. But I'm going to share with you, the more I've studied, the more I'm I personally beginning to see these coalesce. And uh, one of the assignments that I want you to take on for yourself is to read six chapters at one sitting. I'll mention it now so I don't forget, so you put it in your notes. I want to mention six chapters in the Scripture. They're in pairs. The first two chapters are Isaiah 13 and 14. The second two chapters are Jeremiah 50 and 51. 
And, of course, the last two chapters are Revelation 17 and 18. These are not the only major passages on, the, on Babylon, but they're very provocative for reasons that will become obvious as you read them. And that's Isaiah 13 and 14, Jeremiah 15 51, and Revelation 17 and 18. And what I'd like you to do when you get a chance, set aside uh, less than an hour, it's 40 minutes probably, to read these six chapters. As you do so, I believe what will become very obvious to you is the idioms that are used in these six chapters overlap. It's clear that the same thing is in view with all six, even because the idioms and the phrases and the details overlap so much. And I'll go through some of that later on in our study, but I want you to take that on as something for yourself. Now, one of the things we're going to be dealing with is a concept called the world system. The Greek term that we encounter in the text is called the cosmos. And it's the world, but it's in the sense of the world system. The term in the Greek actually means to bring order out of chaos. It's the same root from which we get the term cosmetics. Thought I'd just share that with you. Okay, great. Okay. Yes, I'll hear about that later, I know. (laughs) But the thing that I'd like to call your attention about the world, we tend to use that term so loosely, I'd like you to turn with me to John chapter 17. That's that chapter in which Jesus, we get a glimpse of his intimacy with the Father as we have his high priestly, intercessory prayer. He uh, prays about his disciples at verse 6, 7, and 8. In verse 9, he's speaking to the Father. He says, I pray for them. But I want you to notice what else he says. I pray not for the world, but for them whom thou hast given me, for they are thine. We get that same indication in John 15, verses 18 and 19. It's interesting that Jesus did not pray for the world. The world is going to be judged. He prayed for his own within the world. He prayed for you and I, if you're in Christ. But it's interesting that if we're sensitive, we recognize that there's a, a, a distinction that we want to be especially sensitive to as we jump into Revelation chapter 17 and 18. Now, we're going to encounter the idiom of Babylon in chapter 17 and 18. I won't take our whole time getting into this in great detail, but I want you to be sensitive to the fact that the Bible can be viewed as a tale of two cities the city of man and the city of God. The city of of God is introduced first in Genesis 14 as the the place where Melchizedek is reigning and, and, and administering as a priest, where even Abraham comes and brings him tithes. Now... Uh, from the, uh, Salem. It becomes Jerusalem. Now, while it has, obviously, its ups and downs, and it obviously does gross things, it still is always postured, spiritually at least, as a city of God. Its ultimate destiny is to be superseded by the new Jerusalem, indeed the city of God. But uh, So all the way through, despite its problems and despite its own harlotries and things, it is always uh, the subject of God's care and affection, apple of his eye, etc. So it's the center of his, his, it's a place where he chose to place his name, place his temple. So as you study your Bible, you be very conscious of the fact that Jerusalem is extolled as a symbol of the city of God, even though it's a very bloody place. 
Babylon, on the other hand, has quite a different history. Its first mention is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 14. It is mentioned over 300 times in the Bible. In fact, it's alluded to three times in the genealogy of Christ, strangely enough. It is uh, the location of the first world dictator. The first world government was headquartered there under a leader by the name of Nimrod. We talked about uh, him a little bit in the past. comes from a root which means we will rebel. And the classical translation of Genesis 10.9 is, mis- is misleading. Nimrod was a mighty hunter in defiance of the Lord. And we talked about that last time. It turns out as you study the origin of Babylon and then its history, you'll discover, among other things, that all occultic practices have their roots in Babylon. All that is evil, all that is satanic, all that is the corruption of God's intent. One of the chapters you might want to read, I'll put it in your notes, we'll keep moving, is Isaiah 47 deals with this, brings it out quite clearly. Nimrod and his queen Semiramis. Semiramis was a synonym for the church at Thyatira, by the way. We talked about some of this back then. They had a son by the name of Tammuz, who was identified with the Babylonian sun god. And he was worshipped just following the winter solstice. As the days get shorter and shorter in the year, you finally get to the shortest day of the year, which is the winter solstice, uh, December 22nd. In the idiom of the Babylonian cult, The sun god was thought to have died, and then as the days got longer, reborn. And so they had a whole uh, form of worship that dealt with that. They visualized Tammuz as having died and then being replaced with the child. The word Yule log is basically, the word Yule is a Chaldean term for infant. What they did was they burned a log in the fireplace when he died, and the next morning they'd replace it with a trimmed tree representing his resurrection. And that was the worship of uh, Tammuz. And the mistletoe was a form of fertility symbol and so on. Anyway, as Babylon was conquered by subsequent empires, this priesthood, this whole cultic view, this whole occultic thing, transplanted to wherever the center of power was. And when the Persians conquered Babylon, this power center transferred to Pergamos, which was referred to in Revelation chapter 2. And then, of course, after the Greeks and then the Romans, when the Romans took control of the world, this, the priesthood always goes where the money is. They move the center, of course, to the capital of the world, namely Rome. And these idioms that we associate with pagan Rome, with their idols and their myths and their legends, were Latin labels for what were originally Babylonian legends. Now, uh, when Constantine, the emperor, then be, uh, adopts Christianity as the state religion, he's seeking unity in the empire, and he noticed there were so many ways to reconcile the worship of Mithras, the sun god, and Christianity, that rather than make Christianity illegal, part of his motive was unity in the empire. Uh, he led the way for his Christianity to be legalized, and the successor after him, the second successor after him, made Christianity the state religion. Well, as that starts to happen, the culture, of course, started to adapt the previous worship and ideas to the new Christian trappings. And this was, of course, encouraged by the government, which was seeking unity. And so these earlier pagan practices were incorporated into, a, into the new system. And that's, we shouldn't be surprised then to discover how many of our so-called Christian traditions actually are rooted back in Babylonian worship, Christmas being an example perhaps the most conspicuous example. We know that Jesus was not born in the winter. The shepherds were in open field. And uh, no self-respecting Roman administrator would have everybody be required to go to their hometown for registration when the most of Judea was not passable. 
No, it was more likely it was in the late summer, early fall. But in any case, uh, going on, not just picking on Christmas alone, uh, uh, part of the Babylonian worship was um, Ishtar, the um, mother goddess of Babylon, which gave, of course, Easter after the golden egg of Astarte and Rabbits being a fertility symbol, you get muddled up rabbits with Easter eggs. You ever wonder how rabbits lay eggs? Anyway, uh, on it goes. The year end for Babylon was the 31st of October, probably uh, a vestige of the near passby of Mars, if you've seen our briefing package on the uh, signs in the heavens. But in any case, that was our year end, a scene of many occultic rituals, including... Um, bone fires, which became bonfires and other such things, all kinds of spiritistic uh, rituals that get adopted by many different cultures, not the least of which were the Celts, from which we get most of the traditions that come down to, to a suing or Halloween now. And uh, what the, the church, in reaction to this, adopted Christian practices, uh, but uh, they got corrupted. All Saints uh, Eve, the day following, becomes muddled up. Anyway, you end up getting what we now know as Halloween, all of which really goes back to the worship of Baal, the worship of Mars, the planet Mars, strangely enough. But anyway, the point is, with that background, we can begin to glimpse as to how Babylon, in addition to being a historical city with its own history uh, that's very, very important, it also becomes idiomatic of all that is false worship from the point of view of the living God. And so we're going to find Babylon here referred to as the mother of harlots. It initially will be in control, but then gets uh, devastated. So I'm going to skip ahead. I'm going to give you sort of a summary that I should give you at the end, but I'll give it to you now so you can be sensitized as we go. If we study this chapter, as I mentioned, there's, uh, these two chapters have more identity for this symbol than any other one in the, in the Scripture, and yet there's so much confusion about it. There are at least ten major clues to our identity. The first thing we're going to discover is that this woman in chapter 17 is a prostitute, a harlot. That is the ultimate and promiscuous unfaithful behavior. It depicts unfaithfulness to God on the part of someone who claims to honor God. First clue. That's clearly portrayed. No debate about that. Secondly, I want you to be sensitive to the fact that her influence, the woman of chapter 17, her influence is extensive throughout the world. This isn't a local thing. This is a global thing. Her headquarters may be Rome or Babylon or whatever you decide, but the point is it's much bigger than that. It's interesting to not confuse the woman with the beast she rides. Many people confuse the woman with the beast. They're quick to say, well, the woman represents the Vatican. Well, if that's true, then the Pope is not the Antichrist. And you go through the Middle Ages, they were, you know, all the Protestant reformers felt that the Pope was the Antichrist. Well, they're mixing metaphors. Make up your mind. Can't be both, exactly. She is seated upon the beast and steers and dominates the beast, takes advantage of it, until the end where the beast turns and destroys her. She is destroyed by the beast she's riding. She is decked in purple, scarlet, gold, and jewels. She's conspicuously wealthy, expensively adorned, and outwardly very attractive. We'll notice that. She will be carrying a golden cup. Precious, shining, pleasant to behold, ostensibly a utensil in God's service, and yet a counterfeit and filled with abominable things. We'll see that portrayed here. She has a mystery title. 
a mystery, Babylon the Great. Now that links whatever she is, symbolically at least, spiritually at least, to the Babylon of Nimrod back in Genesis, the early chapters of Genesis. And we have been introduced to that, if you may recall, in Revelation 11. We've already touched upon some of this. She is not only a prostitute, she is the mother of prostitutes, plural, plural. She has, then, spiritual offspring. She has spiritual offspring. She's not alone. I want you to notice the plural. She is the persecutor of Christians or true believers. In fact, you'll find the strange expression more than once that she's drunk with their blood. That's even more than just saying bloodthirsty. She revels or, or she's drunk with the blood of the martyrs. We'll find an identity of seven hills. She's associated with a city of seven hills. And most people presume, may not be correct, most people presume that it's Rome. Rome was built on seven hills. They have seven names. Aventine, Calian, Capitoline, Escaline, Palatine, Quirinal, and Viminal are the names of the seven hills that Rome is famous for sitting on. We'll talk about that as we get there. The great city that she somehow is linked with rules over the kings of the earth. Now in John's day, that was obvious who that was. That was the capital of the world. Roman Empire had conquered the whole world. Its capital was Rome. So in, in, in the idiom of John, in terms of his local situation, that certainly fits. And one reason this, so many people, Dave Hunt as an example, who has who's done this so thoroughly, they note that the Vatican today is a separate nation. It's Yes, it's within Rome, but it has its own status as a sovereign nation. It has its own diplomatic embassies in virtually every major capital in the world. The other thing that is unpleasant to focus on, but it's just a matter of history, there is no other organization that has murdered more Christian believers than that organization. One pope in one afternoon murdered more Christians than all the Roman emperors put together. And so we don't dwell on it too much for lots of good reasons, but the history, the bloody history of the persecutions, the struggle for temporal power, most of the history of Europe is a history of the struggles, financed, promoted, and directly involved, involving the Pope's struggle for power and the ruthless, organized slaughter of those that clung to the Bible. Not just them, many others, but the, what's interesting is the focus on those that were willingly burned at the stake for the sake of the gospel of Christ. Interesting, interesting, bloody history. And I encourage you, I regard it as essential reading to pick up a copy of Dave Hunt's book and to go through it. It'll speak for itself. Well, anyway, let's, with all that kind of a sort of preamble, let's jump in to Revelation chapter 17, verse 1. And there came one of the angels which had the seven vials, seven bowls. We've just talked about the seven bowls. He talked to me saying, Come unto me, come hither. I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. Now this term of whore or harlotry, of course, I think it is false devotion or flatteries. You can find many scriptural passages that exemplify that. Jeremiah 3, has, the third chapter of Jeremiah has three different verses that focus on that. Ezekiel 16, Hosea 1, and so forth. And we've also talked about that in Revelation 2. 
And of course, the horse has a feigned love, a pretended affection, and a false intimacy for favors is what what's implied there. And of course, it's, we use it as a, a it's not just sexual; it's idiom. It's it's intended that way, but it also is, of course, speaking in, ter- in spiritual terms. She will be called a harlot four times in this chapter alone. In the two chapters put together, she's going to be called the great city eight times. So somehow she's a whore, and somehow she's associated with a specific city. Now, by the way, this idea of calling a city a harlot is not unique to Rome, by the way. Jerusalem is called a harlot in Isaiah 121. Tyre, the city of Tyre, was called a harlot in Isaiah 23. And Nineveh was called by a harlot by Nahum. So that idiom was not is not unique to this application. I'm not implying that those other three cities are viable candidates. I'm just pointing out the, the idiom is, is not unique here. Now, she sets upon many waters. And again, we've had that idiom used before, but it is uh, explained to us uh, right here in this chapter in verse 15. Skipping ahead, take a peek ahead. In verse 15, you know, it says, He saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the whore sitteth, are peoples and multitudes and nations and kings. And we've encountered that before in our studies. The idiom of the waters of the sea is idiomatic of the peoples of the world. So she sits upon many waters. Doesn't say all, but many waters. So this is very universal. This isn't a local thing. Verse 2. With whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. This is one of the places where Lenin, his famous quote, is very accurate. Lenin was famous for saying that religion is the opiate of the people. And that's exactly what this is suggesting here, too, that people were made drunk with wine, that the kings of the earth trafficked with her. And indeed, as you look at the history of shedding of blood throughout history, how often it is done under the banner of one religious uh, zeal or another, where it really is just a mask of power broking and brokering and, and uh, uh, grasping uh, of various uh, uh, plunder. Now, the control of the state by religion is one of the most dangerous trends that we have in view. And even here in America, we're beginning to sense and feel the pinch of enforced paganism by our government, both our government and our schools. It's frightening. And it's just beginning. One of the things that has so many of us disturbed is you start doing your homework and you start being aware of what's really going on with Goals 2000, or outcome-based education, find out what's really happening. It's terrifying. Terrifying. I encourage you another book, if you're a good reader, I'm interested in reading a very readable book by Dave Brees called The Seven Men Who Ruled the World from Their Graves. How these ideas have sold us down the river. But moving on, verse 3. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. This is John speaking. He carried me away in the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy and having seven heads and ten horns. It's interesting that John had to be carried away. And we're going to find ourselves surprised because as this unfolds, John himself is amazed and wondered. And when you see, as we get there, I'm going to show you, it's surprising that he would be surprised. 
There must be something about it that's not obvious, and I'll show you what we get there. But the point is, a certain amount of detachment appears to be necessary. He's carried away. He's carried away in the wilderness. And your footnotes, your, your personal notes might include Isaiah 47 and 48 here. I encourage you to read those chapters in this regard. In terms of John being carried away in the wilderness relative to this Babylonian thing. John is carried away three times in the book of Revelation. He's carried away into heaven in chapter 4, verse 2. You may recall, that's where John is transported into heaven at the end of the church period as we started this whole thing with the seven-sealed book and all the rest. He's carried away into the wilderness here, and he will be carried away to a high mountain in chapter 21. And we'll deal with each of those as we go. Verse 4. Oh, anyway, you notice the woman is sitting upon the beast. Don't confuse the beast. Remember in Revelation 13, we had the two beasts, the leading, the main beast, the first beast, and his false prophet, his sidekick. The two guys were introduced in Revelation 13, went through all that. Don't confuse the woman with the beast. She's riding the beast, and the beast will ultimately turn on her. Beast is scarlet colored. The beast is scarlet colored. Full of names of blasphemy. Verse 4, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls and having a golden cup in her hand that was full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. Boy, these are graphic idioms. And I want you uh, to... um, grapple with these and come to your own terms as to what they may be pointing to. Don't do it quickly. Make your notes and and have them uh, as you do your studies and as you mature in your biblical perceptions. Come back to these and form your own opinions. But it's been pointed out purple was the predominant color of Roman imperialism. Every senator and council wore a purple stripe as his badge of uh, position. And the emperor's robes were purple. So purple in John's day, would it be associated with the Roman Empire? Now, scarlet, interestingly enough, is the color that's been adopted by the Vatican. Just an observation. Now, none of these things are conclusive. As you can probably tell, I lean this way, I'm very impressed with Dave Hunt's research. And it, there's also a book, if you're really building a personal library, there is a classic book you may want to add to your library called The Two Babylons, by Alexander Hislop, H-I-S-L-O-P. It's an ancient text, but it's a classic. The two Babylons, being the historical Babylon and the Babylon of the Book of Revelation. And Alexander Hislop dug up all kinds of background on the ancient practices of Babylon towards an effort to try to identify what the Babylon of Revelation might be on the presumption that there's some parallelism. And, of course, he concludes that the practices of the ancient Babylonian religions that are are tediously detailed in his classic book, of course, have their vestiges in the church today, particularly the Roman Catholic Church. But by the way, so we don't sound like we're picking just on the Catholics, the vestiges of that occur in all the denominations. There is Babylonianism in all of our churches. It is most visible and conspicuous in the Catholic uh, practices. But it goes beyond that, as we'll quickly discover here. Now, the golden cup is generally regarded by most observers as uh, the religious intoxication of the anti-church, not the antichrist, the anti-church, a pseudo-religion counterfeit. The other concept that you need to get comfortable with as you study the scripture is this term abominations. Abominations, essentially synonymous with idolatry. Isaiah 44:19 is an example. 
And these abominations occur in high places. Second Kings 23, verse 13 is another case. And again, in the interest of time, I don't want to get too bogged down in any one of these. The Mount of Olives in one place there in 2 Kings 23, 13 is referred to as the Mount of Corruption. So when things are set aside for God's purposes, but then corrupted from those purposes, we find the term abominations, because they're offensive in God's sight. Now, one of the things that's a tragic part of the history of the church is its quest for power. One of the things that got the church, I think, derailed in those very early centuries was the pursuit of power. And uh, I think uh, Henry Kissinger made the classic remark, the ultimate aphrodisiac is power. In other words, power causes you to want more power and increases your appetite for power. And the whole history of mankind is that dismal record. And uh, the church lost sight of its spiritual goals, went after power. The church was not meant to rule until her rejected Lord returns to rule. For the church to attempt to rule in the meantime was uh, tragic. The other term is that you run into is the term blasphemy. We find this all through here, the word blasphemy. Blasphemy includes any doctrine that attempts to add or modify what God has completed. A good example is salvation by works. If you were going to do a study of uh, uh, Satan's most believable lies, you can easily make a list. But one of the most important of Satan's lies is that you go to heaven by being good. In our humor, in our entertainments, there's always the presumption that, gee, if you lead a good life, good enough, if you somehow accomplish X or Y, you make it, you make it or you don't make it. In other words, the idea is that, it's, that, that heaven is a reward for being good. That's a concept that's worldly. That's a concept that has its roots in Satan. Actually, it's roots in Genesis 3, fundamentally. But it's interesting how we stumble on that even within the body of Christ. We read the book of Galatians. We study the book of Galatians and discover how we are to be delivered from religious externalism. That started at the last verse of Genesis 3. Adam and Eve tried to cover themselves with uh, aprons of fig leaves. And, and what does God do? He places them with coats of skin, teaching them that by the shedding of innocent blood they'd be covered. And the whole concept of the sacrificial death on our behalf is introduced in Eden before that chapter, before Genesis 3 is over. And it's interesting that as products of the Reformation, millions willingly died at the stake, clinging to the doctrine that salvation is by faith alone, not by works, by faith alone. And yet, despite that tradition, that precious tradition that we all are beneficiaries of, we find ways to substitute rules. You know, whether it's rules of conduct, of dress, of diet, things you can't do, how we seem to flee the freedom of Christ, the freedom of sin Christ. I suspect that one of our basic struggles, even in the body of Christ, is to avoid the blasphemy of trying to add to what Christ completed. Trying to add to your salvation is blasphemy. It's not a bad doctrine, it's blasphemy. He did it all. That doesn't mean 
that uh, you're not to be encouraged to earn rewards in his service being led by the Spirit. That's a whole different issue. We've talked about this. If you're confused about this, I encourage you to study the book of Galatians, study 1 Corinthians 3, get our commentaries if you like. But uh, very, very key issue. Now, the landscape is littered with groups of all shapes and sizes that have rules that you need to follow if you're going to be part of the elite, if you're really going to make it. And they come in all shapes and sizes. Your bondage, you can pick whatever bondage you like. There's one to fit every taste. And, of course, the ultimate one is the one that's in which your salvation is in the hands of the Pope, and you can buy it with indulgences or efforts if you do this or if you do that. Tragic, tragic misappropriation of the gospel of Christ. And uh, I'm picking on them only because it continues in here. At the same time, we should recognize those same roots, those same blasphemies, those same abominations are probably prevalent to some degree in every church edifice across the land. To some degree. Hopefully, not much. But let's move on and see what else John says here. Verse 5, he says, And on her forehead was the name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Now, the word mystery here is the Greek word mysterion. It means a secret revealed. In other words, the term mystery in, in the biblical usage is, implies something that's been secret up till now. I'm now revealing it to you. Let's read you the, the tone of it. And the mystery of Babylon is in contrast to the mystery of the true church. And the mystery of the true church is revealed in the first nine verses of Ephesians 3. And we've talked about that before. Paul was given the privilege of revealing to us the mystery of the church. One of the most misunderstood concepts in the Bible is the mystery of the church. We ourselves often tend to think, well, that's the group, the current group of believers. We don't understand its uniqueness. We don't recognize its unique powers and its unique destiny that's distinct from the believers of the Old Testament or the believers of the tribulation. There's lots of different groups that are saved and that will spend their eternity with the Lord. But the church, the body of Christ, has a unique destiny, and Paul deals with that all through his epistles. But the fact that he had the opportunity to reveal this unique mystery called the body of Christ, the church, is highlighted in Ephesians 3. Now, what we have here is in contrast to that. Not the virgin bride, which is in one of the idioms Paul uses of the church, but rather the harlot. So there's a contrast set up here. But I want you to notice the word harlot is not singular. Mother of harlots. In other words, it's a brothel. There are many. And let me add mother of Protestants. Mother of fill in the blank. Of any worship that's less than God intended. And I remind you, by the way, that when we studied the seven letters of seven churches, which embodied a complete picture, complete, seven means complete, complete picture of the church, that virtually every one of them had a misperception of where they stood. We tend to presume, well, gee, if my church is like this, or our church is... Remember that every one of the seven churches was surprised with the report card they got. Some were better off than they thought. Some were obviously uh, surprised with what they were guilty of. Now, again, the most valuable part of this whole study of the book of Revelation are the time we spent in chapters 2 and 3. It's the most relevant part to where you and I are. But in any case, ecclesiasticism, churchianity, always leads to idolatry. Always leads to idolatry, one kind or another. 
When we get to chapter 18, verse 7, uh, she's going to boast that I'm no widow. And we'll talk about that when we get there. Very strange boast. Anyway, verse 6, key verse. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. That's quite a phrase. We, you know, when you read Revelation a lot, you're familiar, sometimes you get jaded because we've heard it before. Stop and think about that. I want this woman, whatever she is, is drunk with the blood, of, not just guilty of the blood, drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Not just blood in general, people at large, the martyrs of Jesus Christ. And that begs the question, who has more blood on their hands from martyrs of Jesus Christ than any other organization in the world? And you can make a lot of lists of pagan savagery, make a lot of lists of abuse by various pagan or heathen authorities, and none come close to the history of the Inquisition, the history of town after town after town, wiped out every man, woman, and child, because they were ordered under the Jesuits, under the Inquisition, under, under that. One of the most amazing histories is the true history of Europe from, uh, you know, say, the 5th century through the 15th century. Or, in fact, especially after the Reformation began. And find out why the Jesuits were formed and what their missions were and what happened. It's uh, staggering. Drunken with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Now, John says, when I saw her, I wondered with great wonder. King James says admiration, but that's probably the way we use the term a little misleading. He was stunned. He was awed. Why would John wonder if it was pagan Rome in view? He wouldn't be surprised because that had already started. We're talking 8096 here. The Roman persecutions under the Caesars had begun. John was no uh, stranger to suffering and persecution. Why would he be stunned? The suggestion that's been made, but you have to evaluate it yourself is that he saw these things done under the banner of Christ. The believers are being murdered by the woman under the banner of Christ himself. No wonder John was amazed. And you go back and look at the atrocities. You look at the records key. They didn't just murder people who were heretics from their point of view. They relished in devising ways of torture. They kept records the records that they kept are staggering. The inhumanity. Not just a question of killing them off and, and trying them and executing them. They tortured them to death and they invented. Uh, they used their ingenuity to figure out new ways. It's staggering. No wonder John was amazed. Verse 7, And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her, which had the seven heads and ten horns. Now, the seven heads and ten horns, we've talked a lot about that. Idiom from Daniel 7, echoing all through the book of Revelation. Again, identifying the political power, the beast, that she is riding. The woman is riding this beast. He now talks a little bit about the beast here. The beast that thou, verse 8, the beast that thou sawest was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And they that dwell upon the earth shall wonder whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. When they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. Wow. Now this, of course, is consistent with the general view of most commentators of the revival of the Roman Empire. 
When you study uh, Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 and you study the rise of Europe, as predicted in the prophecies, you're familiar with the whole idea that there are four empires that Daniel saw, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, but Rome in two phases. They would break up into pieces, but at the end would come back together to be a superpower once again. And we've talked a lot about that. We have a briefing package called Iron Mixed with Clay that gets into that if you haven't. But the point is that's very familiar to you. But it's interesting here that, again, we have that same portrayal that uh, this beast, this creature, this empire, that was, is not, and yet is, or yet will be. And it's interesting that it comes out of the pit, out of the abuso. It's not simply a revival of an earthly empire. That's oversimplified. It's supernatural. And we saw that in Revelation 9 and uh, Revelation 11, 7. It was introduced, and, and, uh, and we're going to see it again in Revelation 20. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I want to remind you of 2 Corinthians 2.11. Be not ignorant of Satan's devices. Be not ignorant of Satan's devices. That's why when you watch the present world events, when you're sensitive to the chicanery that's going on in Europe behind the scenes to get the Master's Treaty signed and moved along towards a globalist agenda, when you watch the money powers and the media and the other tides in this country move towards globalism, when you see these young men in the military service court-martialed for declining to betray the Constitution of the United States by taking a foreign uniform, you find them court-martialed. You begin to realize that in our own country there's this tide, this force, this movement Realize that who's behind it. Realize that we're dealing with heavy-duty stuff. That doesn't mean we should fall over. We're in a representative democracy, and I think we need to pray, and I think we need to take a stand. And yet, we should not be surprised as we see these things move. Now, something else, and this is probably a place to point out that um, there's another theme that we won't take a lot of time to develop, but I want you to be conscious of. The first prophecy of Jesus Christ was in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when God declares war on Satan. Satan got Adam to fall. Adam and Eve fell. Perceived them as rivals to his inheritance, presumably, in my view. In any case, Genesis 3, where they fall. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 which most of us recognize as the first apparent, first conspicuous prophecy of the Messiah. God is declaring war on Satan. It starts out in verse 14. The Lord God said unto the Nachash, the shining one, the serpent, who becomes a serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. And upon thy belly thou shalt go, and the dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman. And idiomatically, I believe that's the woman of Revelation 12. We generally call it Israel, but we really mean Israel in the sense that it began with Eve. Read the Messianic line. I'll put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. There, from this verse, the rabbis have recognized from the beginning the seed of the woman is a title of the Messiah, the coming one, the deliverer, the Messiah. The seed of the woman. Contradiction in biology, a contradiction in language. The seed is the man, not the woman. It's a hint of the virgin birth. The seed of the woman is one of the titles of Jesus Christ. We talk about that a lot. We often fail to notice there's another seed mentioned here. I'll put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed. Whose seed? Satan's. The seed of Satan. And he shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. And goes on. And then he goes, talks to the woman and, and he continues. The, but the declaration of war on Satan and his seed. And his seed. Now, the serpent, of course, was identified for us in Revelation 12, verse 9, the red dragon, the serpent, the, so forth. The man-child was there also mentioned. 
the brood of the serpent, the seed of the serpent. Jesus even refers to them, Matthew 12, verse 34. You generation of vipers. Praise means the same thing. And of course, uh, John 8, 44, he speaks of the children of Satan and, and in 1 John 4, the first few verses. So recognize we're seeing a conflict here in Revelation 17 and 18 in the idioms of the book of Revelation. But if we're perceptive, if we've done our homework biblically and we watch the, the world horizon, we can see the forces coming to a climax. We can see them moving, that uh, it's going to become more and more open. Verse 9, And here is the mind that hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. Now this is one of the first things that, uh, one of these identities. This one's, uh, there's some easy ones and some tough ones. This is an easy one. Horace wrote, The gods who look with favor on the seven hills. Speaking, of course, of Rome. Ovid wrote, But Rome looks upon the whole globe from her seven mountains, the seat of the empire and the abode of the gods. Even Augustine wrote, Babylon is a former Rome and Rome is a later Babylon. In other words, the city of seven hills throughout classical literature was always a, that was an idiom of the city of Rome. And we're also going to find here that it's a city which rules over, present tense, rules over the kings of the earth. So the identity of Rome here is pretty clear. Even Peter, in his uh, first epistle, five, uh, chapter 5, verse 13, speaks of Babylon. And most commentators, not all, some believe that that's a code name for Rome. Others argue he really wrote from Babylon. So there's a dispute among scholars, not resolved. But the abundance of scholarship uh, tends to think that he's using uh, Babylon there as a code name for Rome. But that's a presumption. It's yet never been, I don't think, really been resolved. Now something else, though, before we get too comfortable with the seven hills or seven mountains, you should also understand that throughout prophecy, one of the common idioms for governments are mountains. And that shows up in Daniel chapter 2. When the government of Jesus Christ, you know, the, the stone cut without hands smites the image and it crumbles. And then that stone, which of course is the Messiah, the stone, the rock of stumbling, the, the rock of offense and so forth, grows to be a mountain that fills the whole earth and it's idiomatic of God setting up his own kingdom. So mountains are used all through the scripture as an idiom for governments. So this idiom here in uh, verse 9 may be a pun, may be a double meaning, a double reference of some kind. That's very common. Holy Spirit does that a lot in scripture. It may be applying here. But let's move on. Verse 10. If you think this is comfortable, it gets more confusing. Verse 10. Continuing, and there are seven kings, five are fallen, one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. Well, that's not too hard to figure. There's several different views. First of all, the grammar shouldn't say, and there are seven kings. It really should read, because of grammatical problems, they are seven kings. Small point. Well, it's interesting... From Daniel on, we're familiar with the four kingdoms of Daniel, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, but what we failed to understand, there were two prior to that, Egypt and Assyria, in terms of the global, you know, the, the world empires. Egypt is mentioned in Isaiah 52 and 10 and 27 and Hosea 9 and 11 and Zechariah 10 and elsewhere. The Egyptian empire, well established. Then Assyria, I think something like seven centuries, Assyria was a dominant empire, but that was all prior to Babylon, prior to Daniel. So we usually reckon our horizon from Daniel on because of Daniel 2 and 7. So that means, in effect, the first would be Egypt, the second Assyria, the third would be Babylon, the first of Daniel's series, the fourth Persia, the fifth Greece, and then Rome, I'll call it Rome phase one. So five are fallen and one is, and John is writing. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and Greece had fallen. One is Rome, and the other is not yet come, but when he cometh, he must continue a short space. 
which implicitly might be the seventh. Rome, you might call it phase two. And if you want to, you can consider the eighth one will be Satan incarnated, the coming world leader who takes over the phase two of Rome, if you will. So that's a view. Now there's another view, uh, not that popularly held, but Newell and Govett and others hold it. They point out in terms of emperors, Julius Caesar was assassinated, Tiberius, followed by Tiberius who was poisoned or smothered, Caligula who was assassinated, Claudius who was poisoned, Nero who committed suicide, those are five. One is Domitian, living in John's day, and later assassinated, and then obviously some coming. Others like Walter Scott and Schofield and others, they, see, they suggest the possibilities these might be forms of government. Kings, councils, dictators, tisavirs, and military tribunes. One is, that is the sixth, the imperial format set up by Julius Caesar. It's interesting that his name even uh, continues. The Kaiser of Germany, the Tsar of Russia, and the Kaisers of the, of the Islam are all parodies, if you will, of the name Caesar. But in any case, they take their labels from him. John was banished under his form of government, and the seventh would be the last. So some scholars see these seven things as forms of government. I don't, but that's a view that uh, has some good support. Verse 11. Now it gets a little complicated. The beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth, and is of the seven, and goeth into perdition. And you say, well, gee, Chuck, what does that mean? I have no idea. <laughs> no, it's not true. I have lots of ideas. Probably all wrong. The beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth, and is of the seven, and goeth into perdition. We could spend a lot of time on this. I believe it is the little horn of Daniel chapter 7. So uh, I'm going to just, at this point, want to keep moving, so I'm going to say, let's wait and see. But uh, certainly it's a, it's a key riddle to the passage. Verse 12, And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings which have received no kingdoms yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. And this is the same thing that's portrayed in Daniel 7 again, but verse 7, These have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. That's a summary. From the detail, we know that three don't go along with it, but the leader... The eleventh horn puts them down and gets the support of the rest. But in any case, verse 14. These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with Him are called, chosen, and faithful. That's interesting. Where are the called, chosen, and faithful? With Him, who is making war with these Verse 15, And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the whore sitteth, who are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And we've covered that before, but again, this is a global kind of thing. Verse 16, And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore, shall make her desolate and naked, shall eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. Interesting. The kingdoms that are in control, that the woman was riding, taking advantage of, steering, dominating, eventually turn on her and destroy her. And they destroy the harlot. The harlot is not the beast. It rides the beast and is destroyed by the beast. Very key point. Many people fail to make that discernment. And then one of the other questions that's puzzling is the timing. And uh, some people visualize this may be occurring at the abomination of desolation, which means what we've seen occurs during the first half of the tribulation period. Speculation. But just as a, as a view, it's a view that some hold. Verse 17, For God hath put in their hearts, that is, these kings, to fulfill his will, and to agree, and to give their kingdom unto the beast, until the words of God shall be fulfilled. We're going to discover when we get to chapter 18, that some scholars see chapter 18, where it speaks of Babylon, but in different terms, as maybe something else. I don't, but some people see it that way. 
And one of the reasons they see it that way, the woman is killed by the kings. The city of Babylon in chapter 18 is destroyed by God. And they say that makes them different. I don't think so, because I would argue that the woman's also destroyed by God. The kings are doing it for him. From verse 17. See, God has put in their hearts to fulfill his will and to agree and to give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God be fulfilled. So the point is, I wouldn't make that a discrimination. Verse 18. And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. Now this is John. He's speaking present tense. The woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. What great city was reigning over the kings of the earth at John's day? Rome. And that's why the abundance of scholars clearly link chapter 17 with Rome. And in ecclesiastical terms, they see and portray the Vatican. I think it's much broader than that, but that certainly is a key part of it. Now, one of the things we're going to discover I'm going to, as we unravel this, we're also going to discover Isaiah 13 and 14 and Jeremiah 50 51 portray the city of Babylon on the banks of the Euphrates being destroyed at the end times. And so one of the problems that's going to emerge, wait a minute, are we talking Rome or are we talking Babylon and the Euphrates? There would have seemed to be a contradiction. And I'll try to resolve that for you before the hour is over. But let's move on. Let's get chapter 18 behind us. Oh, by the way, on verse 18 of chapter 17, the woman which thou sawest is that great city. Notice that even in verse 18, there's an identity between the woman and the city. She's called a woman someplace, a city, but they're, whatever they are, they're isomorphic. They're the same thing. Some people try to make the woman one place, the city something else. And I want you to be aware of that. I just don't see it that way, and that's, this is one of the reasons I don't see it that way, because I, I think they're commingled here. You will see some commentary speak of the ecclesiastical Babylon, religious Babylon, chapter 17, commercial Babylon, chapter 18. They try to treat them as two different things. And they may be. I may be wrong. But I think uh, until we have clear discernment to just keep them lumped together, because I think God does that here. Now, one of the interesting, bizarre things is that this apparently is a seaport destroyed by God. Chapter one, 18, verse 1, After these things, I saw, by the way, the after these things, metatauta again. Metatauta again. After what things? Well, you have to decide yourself. I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen and has become the habitation of devils, and the hold of every foul spirit, and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Now this echoes uh, similar passages in Isaiah 21, 9, and Revelation 14, 8, and other places. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. That double reference that way is exactly what Isaiah 21, verse 9 says. When it's said double that way, most scholars can build a case that that means it, ha it happens quickly. It's a way of saying it's fallen, it's fallen, that it's coming suddenly, suddenly. One of the things here, it's become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. If you accept the principle of expositional constancy, that is, that these idioms are used by the Holy Spirit with some consistency throughout the Scripture, you'll be reminded in Matthew 13 that um, these uh, birds there in the parables were the ministers of Satan. And it's interesting to see that kind of consistency here. There's also the hint here that maybe Babylon will serve to be the place where they are incarcerated during the millennium. That's been suggested. 
There's also some publications floating around that begin to suggest the idea that these demonic relationships uh, may take the form of alien interactions. And I don't want to derail our biblical study by these weird speculations, but I want you at least to be aware of the fact that these quaint old English terms may have contemporary trappings as you read about UFOs and abductions and all this other stuff. Uh, most people who have studied this seriously have concluded that whatever it is, it's demonic. And uh, the idea of an alien connection of some kind is, is a popular theme among some writers these days. And these same phrases, by the way, as verse 2 is also shows up, you'll discover in Isaiah 13 and Jeremiah 50, some of your reading assignment. Let's go to verse 3. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornications with her. And the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. So the commerce between the woman and the kings and merchants of the earth are obviously here substantial. But I want you to notice verse 4. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. Let's remember when we saw the 144,000 sealed in Revelation 7, that when we got to chapter 14, there were still in heaven, there were 144,000, not 143,999. How many did the Lord lose? Zero, right? Remember his parable of the shepherd with 100 sheep. He didn't end up with 99. He went and got that one, remember? It's the shepherd's burden or job to keep the sheep. Praise God. Is he able? Yes. You betcha. But in any case, there's a voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people. This is reminiscent of Lot. You remember in Genesis 18, when the three shows up by the Oaks of Bomber with Abram and Sarah. Two of them were angels and one was the Lord. And they had a, the two angels had a date the next day in Sodom and Gomorrah. Read Genesis 19 carefully, and you'll discover not only were they sent to get Lot out of there, they point out to Lot they can't bring the judgment until he is out of there. It was a condition of their job to get him out first. Very interesting, interesting passage. By the way, uh, this call to come out of her, my people, occurs throughout the Scripture. How many times? Make a guess. Seven. Isaiah 48, 20, 52, 11, Jeremiah 50, verses 8 and 9, 51, verses 6 and 8, Zechariah 2, 6 and 7, 2 Corinthians 6, 17 and 18, Revelation 18, 4. And I make that point only, it's another one of these subtle fingerprints of the Holy Spirit. We've got 66 books written by 40 authors over thousands of years that are an integrated message. Every detail is superintended supernaturally by the Holy Spirit. Always evidence of design. I think that's fascinating. Anyway, verse 5. Come out of her, my people. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. Reward her even as she rewarded you, and double unto her, double according to her works, in the cup which she hath filled to her double. Psalm 137 could be a footnote here, but we'll move on. Verse 7. How much she hath glorified herself, and lived deliciously, so much torment and sorrow give her. For she saith in her heart, I sit a queen, and am no widow, and shall see no sorrow. Very interesting remark that the woman makes here in verse 7 of chapter 18. I am no widow. That's a strange boast. What's she doing when she says that? She's putting herself in contrast with Israel. 
because Israel was portrayed as the widow of Yahweh or Jehovah. And by the way, a widow or any non-virgin was an unacceptable bride to the high priest or to, the, to any priest. That's why the church is portrayed as a virgin bride. Is she a virgin bride? Not really. She's sinful and adulterous, but Christ's righteousness is imputable to her because of the cross. She's presented as a virgin bride to Christ because he's our high priest and that was the requirement of the priest, taking as a bride. See how it all ties together, Old Testament, New Testament? Now Jerusalem is also called a widow in Lamentations 1.1. When you compare that with Isaiah 47, if you like. Verse 8. Therefore shall her place come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she shall be utterly burned with fire. For strong is the Lord God who judgeth her. And the kings of the earth who have committed fornication and lived deliciously with her shall bewail her and lament for her when they shall see the smoke of her burning. Now I want you to notice something. As we read the next few verses, you'll see a certain pattern, a certain repetition. But I want you to notice that the passage occurs sort of three times. Three different groups of people bemoan her passing. Not for her sake, for their own sake. Three groups of people. Let's take a look at this. Verse 9 is, The kings of the earth who have committed fornication live deliciously with her, shall bewail her, lament for her, and when they shall see the smoke of her burning. They're standing afar off for fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, the great city Babylon, the mighty city, for in one hour is thy judgment come. And the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn for her, for no man buyeth their merchandise anymore. Second group, the merchants of the earth. Then verse 12 and 13, I love it. The merchandise of gold and silver and precious stones and of pearls and of fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and thion wood and all manner of vessels of ivory and all manner of vessels of most precious wood and of brass and iron and marble and BMWs and Mercedes and Porsches. No, it's, sorry. <laughs> And cinnamon and odors and ointments and frankincense and wine and oil and fine flour and wheat and beasts and sheep and horses and chariots and slaves and souls of men. Twenty-eight cargoes here of traffic. Four the, the, the number of the world and four times seven, twenty-eight. And I believe the reason they're detailed here is not to make symbols. They're literal. They are literal cargoes. They don't classify. They don't symbolize. They are twenty-eight cargoes here that are exemplary of literal uh, merchandise. So are they literal? I think so. Are the merchants literal? I think so. Is the city literal? I think so. Now, by the way, as an aside, it says souls of men. You might want to know in Rome that one-third of the population were slaves. Ten thousand were traded per day in the empire. They estimated over fifty million of uh, slaves were traded in the Roman Empire. Well, we don't have slaves today. Wrong. Wrong. You are, whether you know it or not. Over 60% of your income goes into taxes. You're economic slaves. We have economic bondage to corporations, luxury. Very few are able to break with, quote, the system. And it's growing. The quest, the dumbing down of education, the development of uh, world population to be uh, managed is part of the agenda of the globalists. Study it. It's surprising, but it's true. Verse 14. And the fruits that thy soul lusted after are departed from thee, and all things which were dainty and goodly are departed from thee, and thou shalt find them no more at all. Now, we've had so far two groups, kings and merchants. Verse 15. The merchants of these things which were made rich by her shall stand far off for fear of her torment, weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, the great city that was clothed with fine linen and purple and scarlet and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour so great riches is come to naught. See the similarities? 
Same passage with their own interests. Of course, they're bewailing because of their own interests, not because of her. Then we get to the next group, the third group. And every shipmaster and all the company and ships and sailors and as many as trade by sea stood afar off and cried when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like unto this great city? And they cast dust upon their heads and cried, weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, that great city wherein were made rich all that had ships by, uh, in the sea by reason of her costliness, for in one hour is she made desolate. It fascinates me. I read this for many, many years before it hit me that of all the people that have been singled out to bewail the destruction of Babylon, there are three groups of people. Kings, merchants, and those that trade by sea. What does that tell you? It suggests that the foundation of the empire, or the city, is world trade. You stop and think about it, that's exactly what it says. What is the foundation of the European Union? the European economic community, the so-called what? Common market. How fascinating. Not that that is it, but it's setting the foundation for that. Now, in verse 20, we have the first time in the book of Revelation where you're commanded to rejoice. Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and ye holy apostles and prophets, for God hath avenged you on her. That's wild. <laughs> I can't resist asking a question. What do you rejoice over? My new BMW in the driveway. No, 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 no. And I really ask the questions, where is your heart fixed today? Are they on the things of God? Boy, if you really take a good look at what's going on in the world, you can pray the Lord's Prayer with new enthusiasm. Thy kingdom come. And you can add your own footnote, the sooner the better. Huh? God's timing is perfect. Verse 21. And a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and cast it in the sea, saying, Thus with violence shall that great city Babylon be thrown down and shall be found no more at all. And the voice of harpers and musicians and of pipers and of trumpeters shall be heard no more at all in thee. And no craftsman of whatever craft he shall be shall be found any more in thee. And the sound of the millstone shall be heard no more at all in thee. And the light of the candle shall shine no more in all in thee. And the voice of the bridegroom and of the bride shall be heard no more at all in thee. For thy merchants were the great men of the earth, for by thy sorceries were all nations deceived. The factories are closed, the lights are turned off, it's over. For in her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and of all that were slain upon the earth. Heavy stuff. Now, we're running short of time, so I want to, you, you, the obvious thing is you start studying this and you try to grapple with the identity of Babylon. You can paint a very, very vivid picture that this links to Rome for all the reasons that are, we've talked about. And yet, when you do your homework on Isaiah 13 and 14 and uh, Jeremiah 15 51, when you uh, do that uh, assignment, you're going to discover several things. You'll discover that in Isaiah 13 and 14 and Jeremiah 50 and 51, as well as Revelation 17, many nations are going to be attacking them. You'll discover from Isaiah 14 and Jeremiah 50 that Israel is in the land and forgiven. Puts it in the end times. But most interestingly, Isaiah 13 and Jeremiah 50, they both make the point that Babylon is going to be destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah. Has Babylon ever been destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah? Answer, no. Well, by the way, they also point out that it speaks of Babylon as, on the Euphrates, the pride of the Chaldeans. That doesn't sound like Rome, does it? And once it's destroyed in Isaiah 13 and 14 and Jeremiah 50 51, especially in Jeremiah passages, it makes the point that it'll then, after that, never be inhabited, and the bricks and building materials will never be reused. 
Is that true today? No. It's there and being rebuilt. So Babylon has never been destroyed. The literal city on the banks of the phrase has never been destroyed as the Bible predicted. In Isaiah 13 and Jeremiah 50, it happens during a period called the Day of the Lord. That is at the end time, the climax of history. It's a literal city, literal Chaldean Babylon. And it's in Isaiah 13 and 14 and in all, all four of the first chapters. And, of course, uh, Jeremiah will speak of the king's fornication. They're drunk with wine and all that. You'll see the scarlet, the purple, and the golden cup and all of that stuff in Jeremiah 51, which, of course, links it to Revelation 17 18. So we have a dilemma. Setting aside other symbolic interpretations, which are also provocative, but first question, is it Rome or is it Babylon in Iraq? Scholars said, well, it's obviously Rome. There's a lot of reasons for that. We've talked about that. A few said, no, no, it's literally on the banks of the Euphrates. That's because of the Old Testament passages. And I believe a hint, and this is going to lead to a really weird view, but hang on. Turn to Zechariah chapter 5. Zechariah chapter 5. Zechariah is full of some interesting, short, unexplained little visions. And one of these starts in Zechariah chapter 5, verse 5. It comes right after a flying scroll. I'll, I'll leave that for now. Time is short. Let's just jump into Zechariah 5, verse 5, and let's read these just a few verses. Then the angel who talked with me went forth and said unto me, Lift up thou now thine eyes, and see what is that goeth forth. Now bear in mind, this is a vision. This isn't literal. This is a vision. But let's move on. Verse 6. And Zechariah says, I said, What is it? And he said, This is an ephah that goeth forth. And he said, Moreover, this is the resemblance throughout all the earth. Now, an ephah is not familiar to you. It's about seven bushels. It is the standard volumetric measure for commerce in that day. About a seven bushel container. Big, big um, urn. Huh? Okay. Ephah that goeth forth. Verse 7, And behold, there was lifted up a talent of lead. This is a hundred-pound lid that seals this thing. A talent was the basic measure in commerce. The ephah was a volumetric measure. The talent was the weight measure. Lifted up talent of lead. This is a woman that sitteth in the midst of the ephah. And he said, This is wickedness, pointing to the woman. And he cast it, the woman, it, interesting, it into the midst of the ephah, and he cast the weight of the lead upon it. So here we have a strange vision, a basic commercial volumetric measure and a lead, basic lid, a woman called wickedness that's put into this thing and sealed in it with a lid. Kind of weird. My suggestion is that woman is the woman of Revelation 17. Just a suggestion. I'm not saying it is. I'm saying it's a possibility. Let's see what else happens here. Verse 9. Then lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, there came out two women, and the wind was in their wings, for they had wings like the wings of a stork. And they lifted up the ephah between the earth and heaven. And then said I to the angel who talked with me, Where do they bear the ephah? And he said unto me, To build for it a house in the land of Shinar, and it shall be established there and set there upon its own base. So here's the vision. A big bucket, a woman called wickedness put in there and sealed in there. Two women come with wings of a stork and they take this thing off. Where are they going? They're going to take it to Shinar to establish it there on its own base. 
Well, you need a couple other things to put this together. The word Shinar appears in the Bible seven times. It is the region that Babylon sits in. Babylon and Shinar are basically synonyms. Babylon was the city. Shinar is the plain the city sat on. Shinar, biblically, is is an equivalent idiom for Babylon. The other thing you want to catch a wind of is a stork in the book of Deuteronomy is an unclean bird. This is a Jewish vision. So there's an atmosphere of sinisterness about this whole thing. You've got a woman called wickedness that's sealed in this commercial measure with a commercial lid, and it's taken to Babylon. That leads to a conjecture that I share. doesn't mean it's correct. It's just a view. But if you understand the history of Babylon, how it is the beginning of all that is occultic and blasphemous, and how it moved with world power from Babylon to Pergamos and then to Rome, and it's blossomed in Rome, this suggests the possibility that that power center will, before it's all over, be moved back to where it started, on the banks of the Euphrates, in Iraq, what is now Iraq for its final judgment. Now you say, Chuck, that's ridiculous. I don't see that. I like New York or America's Babylon. I can see it's due for judgment. You can paint a very comfortable picture. To the extent that my view is weird, that's useful. If it was obvious, you'd say, well, I'm just reading into prophecy current events. You often get accused of that. No, to the extent that it's absurd, it's useful. Because if you see it start to happen, it's validating. You follow me? If I tell you something that's obvious, the sun's going to come up tomorrow, you say, no kidding, Dick Tracy. (laughs) But if I tell you something that seems to be in the scripture that seems strange, then when you see it, it blows you away. That happened to me in my executive career. I was studying the Bible, teaching the Bible, and I kept running into this business of sorcery and witchcraft at the end times. That was ridiculous. I'm an engineer among executives. That's, uh, that's a carryover from the medieval days, sorcery and witchcraft. And it wasn't until I became sensitive to the counterculture and the impact of the, not just the drug scene in the sense of abusive drugs, but when I discovered the word for sorcery is pharmacia, and when I also visited top executives in their boardrooms and saw the periodicals with Satan worship on their coffee tables in their offices, I began to realize that witchcraft and pharmacia is all through our society. And it stunned me because when I was a teenager growing up in these things, that was the one thing I couldn't visualize. I could visualize the ten nations, all this stuff. I could not visualize a world going back to something as unscientific and as absurd as witchcraft and sorcery. When I saw it happening in our society, it blew me away and realized, hey, it's all happening. Now, if it turns out, I may be wrong, but if it turns out that we begin to see not just Saddam Hussein restoring some buildings, but we start to see the real power on the planet Earth start migrating in that direction, where we have uh, 80% of the world's oil reserves within 1,000 miles of that center, we begin to realize that it starts to rise in commercial, economic, and ecclesiastical importance. When we see the Pope position himself for Islam to embrace them, and we watch him position himself to be the ecumenical leader of the world, as we watch him at Soviet Air Base this past May ask forgiveness from all the Protestants for all the Christians that were murdered throughout the history of the Catholic Church, we applaud that and say, wow, isn't that great? And then we stop and say, wait a minute, why is he doing that? To position himself to be the leader of the ecumenical movement. Interesting. And as we watch the nations of the world, the UN and the rest, prostitute the interests of Israel for the oil interests of the Middle East, as we watch all that happen, is it possible 
that Mystery Babylon will not only be this false, blasphemous religious system that invades all our culture, but it may also turn out to be a power center that's going to eclipse even Rome itself in its heyday. Wild stuff. Watch for it. Let's stand for a closing word for prayer. We've just touched the surface. We have a briefing package called The Mystery of Babylon that tries to go into some of these things in more detail. But just study your Bible and watch the papers and take notes. It's going to be exciting. Let's bow our hearts. Oh, Father, we we praise you that you loved us so much as to deliver us from these things through the redemption that's available in Jesus Christ. But, Father, as we behold your word, we pray, Father, you would help each of us not to be ignorant of Satan's devices, that we would be ever more sensitive to the fact that we are but pilgrims passing through, that we're not citizens of this earth. Father, we would just pray that you would increase in each of us an awareness of the times of the signs. Help each of us, Father, to be ever more diligent in our studies of your word, that we each might be more responsive to your will in each of our lives with respect to all our responsibilities to our families and to that community around us to be examples of what you have done and to declare your truth in these days of increasing darkness. We pray, Father, that each of us might be faithful in those tasks and those challenges and those opportunities that you put before us. We also pray, Father, that you would Increase our studies, Father. Increase our appetite for these studies that we might be delivered, delivered from heresies and deceits and the blasphemies that surround us, Father. We ask all these things in the name of Yeshua HaMashiach, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.